Oh, I love me a brownfield project. Oh, I do. I really do. You know why? Because if it wasn't making money, if it wasn't valuable for the business, it wouldn't be around and I wouldn't be employed to work on it. So I love me a brownfield project. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. They recently launched a new feature called Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base. Transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4j. You can understand code by team, track code smells and health, and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature. Quote, as we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insights, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code, end quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link will be in the show notes again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record live on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Subscribe at youtube.com slash changelog so you don't miss it. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our show super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, here we go. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everyone out there in the land of gophers. We're back with another episode, and this is actually the seventh episode in our what used to be called a maintenance miniseries, and now is just a maintenance series, I suppose. Or just one big long rant. Yeah, just one big long rant. So if you've tuned into our, our maintenance series before, you know we've talked about uh, buying versus building, how to maintain our, how to build actually maintainable software, how to maintain ourselves, how to maintain open source software and legacy code, and even how to like, you know, reuse some of that reusable code. So in that spirit of that last one, though, we kind of dove in on like a particular topic and got more into the nitty gritty of it instead of being this more expansive thing. We're back to a, you know, kind of more confined topic. And that topic today is, you know, what do we do with projects when they get big and messy? And for this topic, I am joined by Ian Lopshire once again. How are you today, Ian? I'm doing great. Awesome. I'm also joined by Sam Boyer. How are you today, Sam? I am just lovely. Amazing. And I have a wonderful co-host with me, and that is Johnny Borsico. How are you doing today, Johnny? You know, I always say that I've been better and getting better. Yeah, I'll stick with that. Okay, yeah, it's always good to be getting better. All right, and since, you know, all of you are now veterans of the podcast, I don't think we need any introductions, so we can just kind of uh, jump right into it, I suppose. So I will caveat this by saying, you know, it was just a month and a half or so ago that we did talk about legacy projects. So obviously, we're trying to talk about big, messy code bases that we don't want to throw away, right? We've talked a lot about legacy and, like, wanting to do greenfield and wanting to get rid of big messy code bases because they're we just don't want to work with them anymore we want something smaller but today's episode is on those brownfield pro, uh you know projects and all of that so i'll start with saying you know I, I think the answer from all of you is going to be yes but do all of you agree that like you know we should be focusing more on those you know brownfield and just kind of taking those big messy projects and advancing them forward or or is anybody here in just in absolute disagreement with that oh i love me a brownfield project Oh, I do. I really do. You know why? Because if it wasn't making money, if it wasn't valuable for the business, it wouldn't be around and I wouldn't be employed to work on it. So I love me a Brownfield project. But joking aside, Brownfield projects are worn in, right? There, there are fewer things to figure out unless it's still actively being, you know, 
features are still being added and you know it's act, development is active right there's no new big pieces to figure out right it's the patterns have been established the abstractions uh, for better or for worse are there have been discovered the the mistakes have been identified and hopefully documented somewhere for some poor soul to try and address at some point but there's clarity right in in the brownfield right if it doesn't sound sexy right there's nothing appealing about a brownfield right but there are fewer things there are fewer gotchas right or at least the the gotchas have been somewhat documented and identified right that's to me that's the some of the pros of the brownfield projects it sounds to me like uh you've had some really great brownfield projects if you think <laughs> all of that's documented and that's not my experience <laughs> No, I mean those those gotchas you said you're hopefully documented. Like, mm-hmm. no, like not always. All right. In the ideal world, I, I agree with you. And even if it's not a good brownfield project that's been documented and well maintained, it's uh, still keeping the lights on because it exists and you're working on it. So, bonus points there. I feel like Sam just has something just ready <laughs> to. He's trying to find a nice way to put it. <laughs> no, actually, I'm trying to. Uh... I'm feeling like a little kid and I'm stuck back on the idea of Johnny. You said you you like, you like Brownfield projects because you know, they make money, which got me thinking. So the value stream runs through the Brownfield what's in the value stream. That's making it Brown, but I'm not going to go any further there. I'm just going (laughs) to leave it and say that my six year old would be very happy to supply some opinions (laughs) about what's in the value stream. But after we get out of the sewer, I think it's interesting that, Johnny, I feel like you must have some projects in mind that you're picturing that they have like the questions answered, right? Some of the mystery pushed out of them that there sort of aren't these gotchas because that doesn't seem like something that's necessarily true of brownfield projects at all. So don't get me wrong. They tend to still have a pile of technical debt, right? Just things that people just wish they could fix. And engineers work on these things and, and they always like, man, like if we could only get a, a month or two to not be building and tacking on additional stuff at a slow rate. That's one of the sort of the downsides of the, of the brownfield, right? It, it takes forever to ship new things, right? Because this you got this pile of technical debt that you're just trying to work your way around and, oh, don't touch that bit of code. Nobody knows what it does anymore. The, the, the person who worked on that no longer works here and they're the only ones who know what this thing does, right? Like you have all these sort of, you know, skeletons in those closets and whatnot. So the code, I guess there's the nuance that I failed to articulate, right? The, the code, I mean, you know, it usually... It's crap. Let's, let's be honest. It's that value stream. <laughs> that value stream, you know, it's full of, uh, you know, the things that makes it brown. You know what I mean? And it's not just the sun hitting down, you know, on, on the grass and making it brown. It, it's, yeah, there's like bad stuff in there. But the business at this point hopefully knows what it wants, right? It's not changing its mind yeah. constantly. And these are some of the things that lead to the technical debt, the brownfield, because, you know, business moves fast. And us engineers, we're just at the mercy of, what does the product team want or whatever? Or what does management want or whatever? What is what is the direction that the company is headed and what how do we keep up as engineers, right? So and you have you have this when we never get the chance really to sort of address some of that cruft that just builds up, right? Which is something I'm hoping we're gonna get into is, you know, obviously the, the a natural sort of consequence of these big and hairy and long-lived projects is the technical debt they accumulate. And hopefully we can have some insight, you know, for our listeners on how we address that. Lots of ways to address that, but the fact that you address it is a necessity, right? That's the nuance, right? The, the the business itself hopefully has figured itself out. But as engineers, we're, we've inherited all the code that was written when the business was still trying to figure itself out. I guess I would pose a question as well of, I know we like to talk, think and talk about, you know, greenfield projects and building all of this stuff, but like, is it actually possible for us, you know, in, not in like fa- like fantasy land, which we all like to think in when we like go into a greenfield project hall, optimistic about everything that's going to happen. But like, can we actually create a project that creates value, you know, has that business dream that doesn't wind up being brownfield? Like, are we just inherently in the sewage industry and we will be dealing with sewage? <laughs> and like, the reason we see them as greenfield is because 
well, they just haven't accumulated any sewage yet because they're not in production yet. So is it is that just like an innate thing? And are we kind of fooling ourselves at the end of the day when we think that our large projects aren't going to wind up being big and messy? Or is it that there is a way to maybe do this better? You know, I, I have a take on this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I think it's really important to identify, right? Like we do the greenfield brownfield distinction in part because, or maybe it's just my flawed perfectionist mind, but I think we are like excited about the new project to some extent because it is shiny and because it has not been sullied by production and the realities of like actually working for someone else and the little processor in our mind. And it's important to maintain that kind of greenfield mentality. Otherwise you sort of never really want to make anything new and shiny, but like recognizing that part of the gap between these just has to do with sort of the, our expectations and our, our um, the, what, what we're bringing to the table is, I think, a, a first important step for approaching any any project. Which mentality do you apply at what point? The field's not. Wait, 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 wait. So we have a dress moment. Instead of is the dress black or what? What black and blue or white and gold? Know. Is the field brown or green? And the answer is yes. <laughs> That's not very hopeful, Sam. You're usually a pretty hopeful guy. <laughs> I meant it to be kind of hopeful. I don't know. Things have happened. I mean it to be hopeful in the sense, right, that like there is the reality of, of business value actually having set in. We know what this thing is for. We know how we get value out of it. And there is something exciting about that sort of uncertainty and, and plunging into new territory. And that's important. It's a great way to like generate excitement, to get people involved, to get people moving in a direction. It's fun to work on new things. But I don't know if you can make green fields inside the brown field, if you can recognize the part of this is what you're bringing to it, as opposed to something intrinsic to the project, you can make green fields out of anything. So I, I kind of wonder if that is if like kind of what you're saying here is that like the way that we get to a green field is by embracing the fact that it's a brown field and, you know, manure is used to grow things. So maybe you have to like embrace that and we get to the green field by actually like sowing the revenue stream into the land and planting things. So they, so they grow. So we're not, this analogy is just going to go through the entire episode, by the way. Yeah. Is, I was kind of waiting for us to get there. <laughs> it is not going to stop. But I feel like it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you kind of think about it in your mind, it, I feel like that, that kind of makes sense. And that's why I, I did really want to talk about this topic too, because it's like, I think a lot of people go into projects thinking that they're not going to wind up with that, you know, they're going to start with a greenfield project, you're going to start with something new, and it's not going to wind up in this big, messy state that we're going to have something that will happen that will avoid this problem. And people just kind of think that later, like later, it'll just, it won't happen. And we'll figure out how to make it not happen later. Whereas it's, you have to think about that as you're going along from the beginning, if you want to avoid having your brownfield project be brown forever. So we're talking about this, like, brownfield is old and greenfield is new so can we talk about what that transition looks like like what what do you do in a project that you did wrong that makes it now brown right like i have some theories about this but i'd love to hear what you guys think time you wrote more code that's <laughs> well you wrote code on a greenfield project that can make it brown quickly you change your mind you change your mind yeah change really in other words time I said that half-jokingly of time, but I think that, I mean, at least to me and the things I've seen, that usually is the big marker of it's just like, we just kept doing what we were doing when we started. Because if you think about how you usually start greenfield projects, you don't, we all very much don't like the big upfront design kind of ideal, but like, you know, that's how you would, in theory, avoid having a brown field at the end of the day is planning what it's going to look like in the future. But when we start greenfield projects, we want to think about all the good stuff, all of the fun stuff. Like no one wants to go put monitoring and telemetry into a brand new project. That's like awful and terrible. Hey, <laughs> hey, I got dinner to put on my table. What are you doing telling people that I want to do that? You're messing with my bread and butter here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they have to, right? You have to put some monitoring and telemetry and logging and all of that in, or you're like, you're going to have something worse in a brownfield. So you got you to put something out there eventually. But that's not what we, you know, you don't jump into a project and immediately start being like, okay, well, how am I going to do my telemetry? But, you know, I think those are the important things. I think that's like part of the, the start of the process of how to make something not a brownfield at the end of the day, not as time goes on. Thank you.
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents, they impact everyone, not just SREs. They give teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum are responding to an incident. They can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. They have incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency, declare and mitigate incidents all from inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics allow you to extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident runbooks, they let you create custom automation rules, convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. You can create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. The next step is to try it free. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all Fire Hydrant features included. No credit card is required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. I have a very painful memory of a project which started out green, quickly became brown, or started browning, but we were moving so fast that there was no, quote unquote, no time to go back and fix it. We just kept rolling, right? So I think we touched on some of this over previous episodes, but we had a proof of concept. It was actually a brand new, indeed, a brand new project, Greenfield, like new GitHub repo and everything, like brand new stuff. And we sat down with the customer, identified business processes, and this is what this thing needs to do. This is the problem domain and all the good stuff, you know, all the due diligence, the architecture. We didn't want to do too much, you know, architecture up front. We don't want to do B duff like big design up front. We're trying to avoid all that, right? We're trying to be, you know, trying to be agile. Gosh, that term sort of gets into my skin now. But we're trying to sort of sort of um, a little bit of design a bit of development, a bit of design. So basically trying to do the right thing, right? Trying to not run before we can crawl, right? Despite doing all these things, a year later, we end up somewhere we didn't originally think we were going to end up, despite all the requirements, the gathering, despite all the sitting down with the customer. Because again, change in time, they kind of change the scope of the project. They change the nature of the project. They had a pivot in there. And this wasn't like a startup or anything. This was like an existing business, right? With a new business unit that's trying to do things. So this was like a well understood problem domain. They sound like they were looking for product market fit or anything like that, right? Which are things that cause a lot of change, a lot of uh, you know churn. But this was a, the conditions for this were, were effectively perfect. You have an established business who wants to build a new piece of software to basically um, take over manual processes. Like there's nothing more clear cut than that. Yet, a year later, we ended up in a place that nobody in the team was happy with. Unfortunately, somebody went home and over the weekend came up with a whole new, the idealized, right, quote unquote, version of what the data model ought to be. Kind of surprised everybody the next week with the new thing, right? People weren't surprised in a bad way. They were surprised like, oh, you did that. We've been waiting to do these things forever, right? Or make these changes or, you know, change these class names and like all the things you want to do as a developer. Like, oh, this thing doesn't really mean that anymore. We've overloaded the term. So now let's come up with a new term to represent this. Let's come up with a new name for these processes or whatever it is, right? You're just refactoring the whole thing with reckless abandon, right? What ended up happening, we now had two models, <laughs> Because clearly we couldn't just replace the old with the new that the developer had done over the weekend. It was unproven. It was all the things you'd expect. So we were like, hey, let's change the tires on this 18-wheeler or 16. I don't know how many tires trucks have, (laughs) but let's change the tires. Let's change some of the tires on this thing as it's rolling down the highway, right? We just tried to change too many tires all at once. And then now we ended up having, you know, this monstrosity 
of some day, some parts of the application referring to the new data models and new class files and new things, and then some of the old ones referring to the old ones. So now we onboarded a new developer, worst possible scenario, right? We bring in a new developer. They're sitting down scratching their heads wondering, WTF happened here? And we kind of didn't have a good answer. It was like, well, the old stuff was kind of old and brown and really kind of that's not what the business was about anymore and the new stuff is kind of an attempt at reimagining that but we just hadn't had a chance to sort of make the old stuff go away so that we can only have the new stuff now we have both of them so that to me that is the worst possible scenario it's like saying give me all the negatives on both sides and let me have that so every time we talk about greenfield brownfield i just think to that project i'm like uh it's okay to have brownfield it's okay to have legacy stuff. It's okay to have Cruft. It's okay to have these things. But the, the naive thing, especially if you lack the benefit of time, right, on your side as a professional, the naive thing to do is to think that you're going to come in and over a weekend just re-envision the whole thing, right, and just come and say, hey, folks, let's look at what I came up with. What, you think none of us had this idea? You think none of us like <laughs> don't want to just go home and over the weekend just remodel the whole thing? We just did think we've just been lazy? Like, no, this stuff is not as straightforward as just swapping a few class files, right? So yeah, I think it's it's we need to learn. To me, if you've only ever worked on Greenfield stuff without the benefit of having sat down and grown with the project and see it in operation, experience the pain of it, get woken up at night by a page, like all of these things that give you that well-rounded perspective on these sort of business systems that we're writing. Like if you've only ever done greenfield stuff and you don't get to see it through and you move on to another greenfield stuff, like you, you're lacking to me, like not through a fault of your own, but you're lacking a certain aspect of understanding how basically that's the stuff that takes you from coding to engineering. Engineering is is where you add time to the mix to understand how do you keep this thing running right over the longevity, over the long term. So I feel like a good, like maybe a good succinct way to put that is like when you are dealing with these big, messy projects, avoid trying to just fix everything in one fell swoop. It's like you gotta like slowly deal with the mess over time. It's not a sudden overnight or weekend kind of process. It is this kind of, it's like running a marathon, right? It's like this thing that you got to pace yourself and you might want to sprint those first 200 meters, but if you just like keep sprinting, you're never going to be able to finish. So you want to take it a bit slower than that and kind of plan the way that you're going to go from the mess that you have to the cleaner world that you want to live in that does that sound like a good like succinct or sort of succinct uh version of what you said johnny oh i like it don't mind me i can i can be a bit verbose so thank you for summarizing into a tldr for me yeah no problem <laughs> the hard part there then is knowing which things to fix given that they take time what's valuable enough to work on right and i'd propose that engineers are not always in the best position to make that determination Scratch your own itch is not necessarily because everybody's going to have plenty of itches and it's very easy for perspective to get warped on that by which things seem itchy to you. I feel like this is um, a part where like the types of engineering roles you have plays a pretty big role in your organization because I think there are people that you need to have in this kind of middle space, right? It's like you have the people that are up to the senior engineering level that are sitting in the code every day. And there's a lot of itches that they have. There are a lot of things that they want to fix. And then you have the product people on the other side and they have all of their own things that they would rather see fixed. And I feel like there's this like space for like the staff plus engineers that have a good enough understanding of the code base to like kind of know what are the things we should fix, but also have this higher understanding of like what the business needs and what the product needs at the end of the day to kind of like keep going and growing. So I just kind of throw out there like another thing, another way to help deal with big messy code bases is to have people that are kind of sitting in the middle and can see a bit more of the world at the end of the day. Because if you just have people on the opposite ends, it's going to be very difficult to actually get the valuable things that you want at the end of the day. Basically, everybody's going to be mad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're you're right on the money there about having to really choose what you want to fix. It's something like I, I came into a pretty crusty code base at my current job. And kind of the way we go about thinking about that is looking at the year ahead, what we have planned. And if we're doing something just 
to do it, we're not going to like, we're going to look at like, if we want to experiment on these three things in the next year, we're going to fix things that make that easier and the rest of it that's working, you know, we're not going to touch it. Every move you make should make a set of visible moves on the other side easier. Exactly. So one of the reasons I like observability and metrics and traces and all that stuff, it's not because it's trendy, whatever trendy name we, we have for these things now. It's because they help put a number to things. They help identify inefficiencies. They help identify problem areas. And if you can tie problem areas in the code or your infrastructure or your you're responsible for as an engineer, SRE or whatever, if you can put a number to it and if you can tie that somehow to some business process, which is valuable to the business, you're way more likely to be able to successfully argue for perhaps time to do some refactoring as you implement new feature X, Y, or Z. The mistake we make as engineers is to think that we can simply tell the business that, hey, we need to do some refactoring. You know, we need to um, we need a month. We need two sprints to go fix things. And if you happen to be lucky enough to be in and to work somewhere where you know the business can afford not to have any features or fixes or whatever happen for a couple of months while you go and refactor things, that's awesome. Keep that job, right? That's most jobs I've I've worked at. That's not, never the case, right? The what I've seen work is that if I have numbers, I can tie right numbers to pain points for the business. I don't even have to argue about refactoring. The business doesn't care about refactoring, testing. Like These are our concerns. The business cares about this process is error prone. It takes forever. It takes five hours to get a customer's issue resolved. It's costing us X dollars every time we do it. Business cares about that. And I can say, oh yeah, we understand why, right? And I have the numbers that says, yeah, this is because of this, this, and this. Now, equipped with that, I will get the time I need, right? As an engineering manager, I'll get the time I need, right? To get something refactored. Again, we're not going to do the whole code base, right? We're not going to turn the whole thing from green to whatever colors in between, between brown and green. I don't have a color chart in front of me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right? But slowly, right, you're going to get there. But you have to tie those engineering pain points, right, to business pain points. Otherwise, if it's just engineering pain point, good luck. That's just, you know, little pet peeves that you've got, right? The business is just fine with it. I will say I've worked with quite a few product managers in my past and other business people who, like, are very understanding of, like, the fact that we do need to fix technical debt and code bases and we need to fix these things that bother us. And the thing that I have always noticed is that, like, I think engineers have a lot of the curse of knowledge, where it's like they understand things so well that they just think everybody understands them. Whether it's these people over here that are like, I'll give you the time, but like, just assure me that you're sure that at the end of this time, this thing will be done. And so they enter it with that. And then we say, oh, yeah, 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 we'll definitely get it done by then. And then that two month thing actually takes four months. And they're like, okay. And then you do that like two or three or four or five more times. And then they're like, hey, look, like, you're always wrong with this. So like, how am I supposed to just like trust that this time you'll be, you'll be right. And like, we all come up with these, well, it was, it got delayed because of X, Y, and Z. And this was it. But like, we're very, it's like very difficult for us to articulate that. And I think that is part of the reason that we wind up with these big messy code bases is that like, we failed to articulate why we need to do this thing. And we failed to go back and actually, you know, do some of these steps in agile of like, have a retrospective and ask ourselves, okay, this thing that we said would take two months took four months. Let's actually write down why that thing took four months instead of two months. So then we know what it is that made it happen like that. And we can give that to the business, but also use it for ourselves. Because I think there's a lot of projects inside of these large code bases that are like, I want to fix that thing. But we go into it without having a strong idea of how long that will take. Because if we did, we might say that thing's not worth it. Like, Two months might be worth it, but if it's going to take six months, we might say, okay, well, it's, it's probably fine the way it is. So I think that's probably another tip there of like, if you have a big code base, the way to get it less messy is to be real and raw and honest with yourself and your team about how long is it going to take you to fix things and give yourself enough information. Even if the business does give you that unlimited runway, even if it is the first time and they say, you say, I need some time to fix this. And they say, take what you need. 
you still should sit down for yourself to make sure that you have an understanding so you don't waste that precious time that you get. And it, it is quite rare, as you said, Johnny, but there are places that have it. So if you are lucky enough, then make sure you you give the gift to the product people of seeing good engineering. So the next place they go, they might give that team the same kind of leeway that they gave you instead of the other way where they're like, oh, well, I just had this bad experience. So I'm going to carry that with me for the rest of my career and spread it to the rest of the product people I know. Right. It's like everything has an effect. It's it's a ripple effect. It's not just an isolated incident. Or, you know, not the next place, like future you or future your coworkers. It feels like a truism to me, perhaps, but I should verbalize it and see if y'all share the assumption. I'll go back to the like, is the field brown or green? I think it might be a perception thing. And if that's a perception thing and not an actual color of things in a field thing, then we should recognize that no amount of time that we spend refactoring the project is actually going to make it green again. Uh, you know, paying down technical debt is going to make it green again. And if that is the case, it's pretty reasonable to put limits on the amount of time that we would spend on doing that refactoring. And all the more important, that skill to find the patches of green inside the larger larger thing of brown. Yeah, I've had this kind of expanding, you know, take on the grasses that are always greener on their side of like, but why is the grass always greener? It's like, well, they take care of their lawn and they plant grass seed and they do weed killer and they do all of this work to make their grass super green. And your grass might be green, but not as green as their grass. And you want your grass to be as green as their grass, but it's like, as you said, it's a perception thing. Like, does my grass need to be that green? Like, do I want to spend all of the time de-weeding my lawn and setting up a good sprinkler system and watering it and doing all of this other work just to have a lawn as green as theirs? Or is my green but kind of weedy, has a lot of dandelions and stuff in it? Like, maybe that's fine. Maybe that is just okay of a lawn to have, and we should be all right with that, right? I feel like there's some amount of keeping up with the Joneses and us having rose-colored glasses about previous projects and thinking, but that project was real good. I want to do that thing again. We like filter out all of the bad parts of it. So it becomes this idealized green project. First of all, I'm love we have just so many metaphors right now. I can just picture the faces of, of people rolling their eyes at me when I <laughs> use this number of metaphors. <laughs> But that's okay. So I want to ask a question. What does grass is greener on the other side mean to you? Because I feel like it might mean a different thing to you than it does to me. What does it mean to you? I'm not trying to call you out. What it means to me is that like you always think the grass is greener on the other side. But when you get there, you realize all the dandelions and all the like patches in the grass that you had that you were noticing are also on the other side of the hill. And it was just you not realizing that they were there until you got there. Yeah, slightly different interpretations of that. Because I'm like, okay, the grass is actually greener over there. Right. So it's like, okay, but why is it greener? But I think like both are like, you know, nuanced and like analogies of things. I think they're both like good ways of thinking of it. It's like, it's greener because they take care of it, but that doesn't mean there's no weeds, right? It's very hard to have like a weedless lawn. So yeah, it, it looks greener from where you're sitting, and it might actually be a bit greener, but it's about like how much do you care about how green your lawn is at the end of the day. So my neighbor <laughs> literally <laughs> quite literally, I kid you not. Oh boy. Quite literally. We're getting out that axe. I can feel it right now. We got let's grind that boy. Quite. Come on, let's do it. Grind that axe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he quite literally has greener grass than I do. And you can see, and if you can tell where your grass ends and your neighbor's nice, lush, green grass begins, <laughs> that's how you know, right? Because <laughs> there's, no, there's no artificial barrier. It's not like there's a wall in between their grass and mine, right? It's just, you know, there's just like my stuff. It's just like all raggedy and like, you know, has some brown in it. And so I'm like, I'm looking at his grass. Like literally, when I sit outside my window, I look downwind from me and I'm like, you know, like, how does he get his <laughs> shit so damn green? <laughs> and I'm like, every year, every year here I am, you know, I'm going to Home Depot and, and, and picking up stuff and just tossing on there. Like, I, like, literally, I have no clue what I'm doing. And then one day I was like, you know what, Johnny, rather than watching YouTube videos about people's grass that might really have nothing to do with yours, how about you go talk to your neighbor? Say, hey, neighbor, I noticed that your grass is... uh." really nice, really green. I'd like to have similar looking grass. What do you do to yours? And he proceeded 
to tell me exactly what he does at different times of the year so that when spring comes around, the grass is healthy, things start, you know, growing and he, it's basically, he's basically on, on maintenance mode. He's not doing it. Like, I don't see him. He, I just see him out there mowing his lawn. And every once in a while, I see him spray some stuff. I'm like, what is that you got there? Like, what are you doing over there, right? So he's literally, he understood his grass. He was like, hey, so call this company. They're going to analyze your, your soil. In this part of you know the country, the soil tends to be, you know, got some red clay in it, this and that. So he started, like, telling me right? Why my grass is the way it is. Because he had the experience to understand the land. He had done understand, he understood the soil, you know, obviously he's on his house, you know, he's an older gentleman. He's on his house a lot longer than I have. And he understands the area, right? So, and I realized, okay, I thought I knew what I was doing, but I didn't know what I was doing. Now, these days, my grass is a lot greener. It's no, still nowhere close to what his is. But I've got fewer patches in my lawn, right? Fewer brown spots, right? And I think it's the same thing with software. We think we know what we need to do, right, to fix the brown patches. But that's just hubris, right? We, we're just arrogant, right? We just, we just think, like the person who goes over, who goes home and comes back, you know, after the weekend with a whole new data model, right? <laughs> like, you know, we think we know, right? We, we don't ask. We don't ask the people who have been there for a while says, hey, so um, why is this the way it is, right? And if we only sat down and listened, we would start to pick up and understand why things are the way they are and figure out how to move it forward, how to change it and realize we're not going to do it overnight. It takes time, right? Multiple years, right? As it took my grass, <laughs> it took me like three years to get it to where it is now. But it took me asking and being humble and saying, you know what? I don't know the history of this, right? Can you tell me? Can you help me out here? Can you help me understand what I don't understand? I think it's the same thing. I think if you're going to go into a brownfield project and it's new to you, Rather than going in guns blazing and say, oh, I know how to engineer software. I'm going to architect this. I'm going to do what y'all couldn't do, right? That's just arrogance. Just slow down. Ask around. Talk to the business. Talk to the business analysts. Talk to engineers that have been there for a while. Heck, I'm, if, if I'm feeling adventurous, I might even call people who no longer work there because they'll be like, man, I couldn't deal with this. I tried to do what you're doing now and nobody was moving. I had to, it's, that's, the, the, the point, that's the data point too, right? So understanding and having humility, right, I think is, is necessary to dealing with these long-lived brownfield projects. I feel like there's another, another point you had in there as well of like, before you asked your neighbor, you know, you went, you were watching YouTube videos, you're trying to figure things out. And I think that's how a lot of people try and solve these brownfield problems. They like, go pick up the gang of four, go pick up some book. And they're like, oh, I'll just go read all of those other stuff. This is general knowledge, which is useful and is helpful. But you need much more of that localized knowledge of talking to people that have worked on that project for a very long time and understand all of the nuances of that project and, you know, how it came to be. And then you can start working on it. So I, I definitely do. Like, if you're someone that's jumping into a new project, like a new project that's big and messy, it's definitely good to like get acquainted with the land first. Understand what type of soil that you have, and then start trying to fix things. Don't think that you can come in and just fix things from day one. And I think this is something that companies could do a little bit better too, because I think there is this very intense focus on like having engineers be as productive as possible as soon as possible. You know, the like you commit to production on day one. And while that can be good from like a, a morale or an excitement perspective, it can be very harmful in the like long course of maintaining the code base, because now you're trying to optimize for say newer people being able to just kind of jump into the code base instead of optimizing for, you know, the health of the code base overall, even if it does take, maybe it takes a week or a month before someone can commit into it, but the code base is healthier as a result. See, it's okay to have analogies as long as we tie them back to the topic at hand. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by LaunchDarkly. Fundamentally change how you deliver software, innovate faster, deploy fearlessly, and take control of your software so you can ship value to customers faster and get feedback sooner. LaunchDarkly is built for developers but empowers the entire organization. Get started for free and get a demo at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com.
and by our friends at Flatfile, the leading data onboarding platform for teams who don't want to build yet another CSV uploader. Flatfile's powerful out-of-the-box solution takes the import burden off of your shoulders, freeing you to solve bigger business problems and build products that people love. Get to usable data faster so you can focus on what matters most to you and your business. It is incredibly fast to set up just write a few lines of code and get up and running in hours, not days or weeks. It is framework agnostic. Use the SDK to integrate Flatfile into any JavaScript application with support for all major frameworks. Learn more and get started at flatfile.com. Again, flatfile.com. Johnny, I liked your, I liked your story and your tie back in, and I was reflecting on how I have uh, recently pushed you hard and charged too much in a direction and did not indeed do enough of the exact kind of listening to the local knowledge that you're describing and problems arose. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I'm going to point to another part of your story too, right? Because your neighbor noted to you, right? Or you noted, I can't remember if it was him telling you or you noticing that doesn't do a lot, right? Like do the specific right things at the right time, right? And... I think it is, maybe this is another place where where the sort of the, the greenfield versus brownfield mentality is different, right? Like when you're starting a new project, empty repository, you know, blank page, you do have to throw a whole bunch of effort in a whole bunch of different directions to get the sort of thing just bootstrapped, right? But for something that's already moving, that's already got its direction, it's probably a lot more about, often a lot more about, you know, the right taps at the right spots to guide it in the right direction. That sort of, uh, that same kind of uh, a full bore <laughs> energy can be counterproductive. You end up fighting the inertia of the project and that's not helpful. You got to figure out how to actually make it fit. I read a book years ago or a series of books, like the Good to Great series. And, and in it, they kind of tell you how to think of the momentum of your business as like this giant flywheel that's moving. And I think that when we start new code bases, we're kind of just like, pushing on it and it's not going anywhere but as the code base grows as it adds value the flywheel starts going it starts moving really really fast and then eventually it kind of takes over its own inertial and you're pushing it rather lightly and you're getting huge gains out of it and i think when someone new does come into a project then they're like oh no no we got to stop everything we got to change everything well now you gotta not just stop that flywheel but then start it going again in a different direction and that that's a lot of organizational force to make something like that happen so I think your, your point is like right on the spot there, Sam, where it's just like, yeah, we have to understand like, what is this product? It's not, it's not Greenfield. It's not new. We're not starting from nothing. We have this whole thing here and this thing is, is doing the thing. So we need to figure out how to do it, how to do what we want to do while the flywheel is still moving, like gently change the direction of it, not just abruptly stop it and start it again because, well, we're here now and we're amazing. So of course we know how to do everything great. It's like, no, 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 no. It's already moving. The people got it moving. You need to respect that and you need to understand that. And I think the same consideration goes in if you have a big project like that and you just want to do a V2 of it. You just want to do a brand new version of that thing because we, we've all had experiences with those plagued projects where it's like, okay, we're going to declare bankruptcy, make a new one. And then you're still kind of relying on the old one because it has so much momentum. You're trying to bootstrap the new one and you just it feels so bad because now you're in the new one and there's all this pushing that you have to do. And you're like, I don't have to do this much work on the old one. And like it's draining at the end of the day. So I think it applies both to if you just kind of get dropped into a new project or if you're in a project, you are on those people with historical knowledge and you're thinking, all right, I think we should start a new thing. I think we should try this again. So like, just remember, you're going to have to put in a lot of effort to get it to where your Brownfield project is. And you should take that analysis into consideration when you decide, is this thing so bad? Is this thing so messy that I should get rid of it instead of just fixing it where it is? That goes to the thing, right? Like we, we've been we've been riffing off the brownfield greenfield thing, but like, what are we trying to do to the brownfield? We're trying to change what it is. Is that what's important to the business? Are we trying to just extend it? Like, what it, is the problem that it's messy? What there's a lot of different sort of things you can do with a uh, or spots that a that an existing project can be in. And if we're talking maintenance, 
I mean, are we just bug fixing or is what we're doing trying to refactor in a direction such that, you know, you're sort of enabling further improvements? I don't have an answer, you know, I'm throwing it out there because I, I feel like we have, we have strayed from the question of what, what kind of work we're actually doing on the code base and what the goals are. You should have maintenance. It's in the name, right? You're trying to maintain it so that it, it can keep, continue to provide value over time. The mistake we make is in thinking that we can keep projects sort of sort of green, right, forever. That's not realistic. And I looked it up, the color be between brown and green, by the way. it's it's. I'm told it's forest green. It's like earthy green. <laughs> it's still green, all right? <laughs> but, but the thing is, it's not It's not got a brand new green. It's not fluorescent green. It's not It's not like, you know, early spring green. It's more like late summer. It's been, sun's kind of beating it up a bit. You know, you might it's have a- has seen some stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's seen some <laughs> stuff, right? Maybe the kids ran out there and just ran over it and just pilfered it. You know, like it's seen some things, but- the hallmark of good grass, as long as we're talking about grass here, gosh, it shows all about this analogy. <laughs> but as, as, as if we're talking about good grass, one of the nice properties of healthy grass is that if you step into it, right, it'll depress as grass is, you know, normally does. But once you step off of it, after about two or three minutes or so, it sort of springs back up, right? It doesn't stay flat. It just comes back up, comes back alive, right? So that's healthy grass, meaning that the business can come in, step all over it, abuse it, right? And your system somehow is able to sort of, uh, is resilient to all the different changes, all the different abuse, you know, that it can sort of, that can come its way. Yeah, the sun will beat down on it, right? But at the end of the day, you're realistic enough that, okay, you know, like this is not early spring grass. This is used, well-worn grass, but it's still green, because you're doing the things you need to do, you're keeping the dandelions off of it, right? You are, you're applying the pre-emergent in early spring. You're you know weeding and feeding, right? Like you're out there all the time, just taking care and maintaining, and that's what you want. You want maintenance to keep it resilient, not to keep it from ever browning. Because sometimes it will brown. Sometimes the kids go out there, they put a darn sort of slide, slippery slide water thing in there, and at the end of the day, I move the thing, and I'm like, oh my god. Uh, there's a patch of brown in my lawn because of the kids they were out there but again because the, it's healthy enough the surrounding area is healthy enough that after a couple of days it comes back to normal right you want that resiliency you want your software to be resilient and that comes through maintenance you're not gonna get the everlasting you know new green that's not what you should be after you should be after resilience so and here we're talking about not operational resilience but like code-based resilience correct so what are the properties of that? I actually have some thoughts there. I was kind of reflecting on that earlier today. And I keep coming back to this idea of like bad projects being like calcified, like they get rigid and hard to change. So like throughout the code base, you don't know the repercussions of changing one piece. You don't know what the side effects are. You know, there's not the documentation. So the bad projects are the ones where you don't know what a change will do. Like that's the summary of it. That's what I think like you need to identify and fix. You agree with that or don't agree or... I would certainly say that's one of the properties. Uh, I would certainly agree. I think that you can tease out more. I think last I think last time we talked we talked about like failure locality um, as, as a good as a property of good tests, right? Like that that not only do you have things that help you know when things break, but you know where they broke. Um, and this is not as simple as you know like writing good log messages in your tests. It has to do with the way that you design your code base. Um, it has to do with building layers. It has to do with having good clear separations of responsibility. And it's, I would say though, that, that those things are hard to add after the fact. And this is perhaps one of the main frustrations with brownfield code bases is like, so wait, you want us to change like 30,000 lines of code <laughs> in order to like redo an architectural abstraction that we didn't have. And we're clearly surviving without and have, what's the impact of this supposed to be? And this imaginary person that I have begun impersonating without saying who they are is not a product manager either. Like that's another engineer being like, really, really, <laughs> really. And they're not wrong because that's hard. Yeah, I think there does at the end of the day need to be some some good justification. I think that's good too. It's like, if you're going to re-architect something, then at least make sure you know the value you're going to derive from it. And it's not just because it's, the new shiny thing at the end of the day. I think I think our industry does suffer quite a lot, especially in certain parts of the industry, perhaps related to browsers, where people just get 
very excited about the underlying architectures, frameworks, and libraries that you're using and the, and the new patterns that we have. And I think it's like, well, what is that giving us? What is that adding to us? Why were those things developed? And understanding those things at a, at a deep level, I think, is important to actually having that more resilient code base. It's not, I have this pattern. It's not that like, oh, I just decided to start using queues everywhere because queues are cool and async is the hot thing. But it's like, no, this problem is actually like, can be solved well with a queue, can be solved well with this type of technology. The interesting thing about this conversation is that as software veterans, I think we have sort of this intrinsic sort of understanding of what it takes to build software. So for somebody, like if I put myself in the shoes of somebody who's new to this, maybe you've been doing this for, you know, two or three years, you, you simply haven't had enough time around to understand sort of the deeper meaning that, that we're trying to put forth here. That's why lessons have been captured in books, right? That's why we go back and we read these things. And that's why we have these, uh, the Gang of Four, the pattern books, you know, all these things were designed to help, basically help engineers to build better software, more maintainable software and things like that. Like, for example, open close principle, right? Something that I'm, I know we're all aware of that, is a way of basically saying, hey, one aspect, right, one characteristic of maintainable software is that, you know, um, um, classes, for example, should be open to extension, not from, to modification, right? So if every time you you need to add new business processes to your software, you end up changing your classes rather than extending them, right, rather than adding new functions or new methods and new capabilities. If you have to go back and change a few things and then now you have to change the things that depended on this thing and then now you, you to support one new thing, you're changing a dozen other things which really aren't related to the thing you want to do, right? That's a good smell, right? That's a good indication that, okay, you, you're, your software is not as maintainable as it perhaps ought to be, right? But these things aren't new, we have this knowledge. It is buried in our books, right? Not all of it, right, is perhaps still relevant in, in the modern day uh, that, uh, you know, we find ourselves in for software engineering and whatnot. But a lot of it still very much is, right? So if you're new to this, right, and perhaps one of the things that we can do in the show notes is to provide some books and some articles and some things, some references, right, to some of these principles that have basically stood the test of time, right, to help you understand how to build better software. And this transcends Go, it transcends Java, .NET, Ruby, whatever it is, right? These are things that you can apply regardless of the technology you're using. Basically, I guess we're not telling anybody anything new here that hasn't been around for a while. I think what we're trying to say is that, look, we're old hats at this, and we now more than ever understand where, you know, sort of uh, the people who were writing about this stuff when we were sort of coming into our own. Now we we see more than ever where they're coming from and we can apply some of these things. So uh, if you're new to this, right, there's help out there to understand this. You don't have to rely on us for telling you, <laughs> you know, giving you anecdotes about grass and things, right? <laughs> to, to wrap your head around this, there's, there's stuff you can learn out there. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end like this part of the conversation. I have one question before we jump into the final segment of unpopular opinions. And that is, is Go a good language for big, messy code bases? And I feel like this can probably be its own episode. So, but I just want to get like a cursory, how do you all feel about that? Is Go good for this type of stuff? Does it have the right features for dealing with these types of large, messy code bases? Yeah, strong static analysis is the first thing that jumps to mind for me with big, messy code bases. Like, if we talk about being able to, what Ian was saying, right? Like a calcified code base is one that's difficult to understand the effects. It's not like static analysis is going to cover you everywhere, but being able to just quickly, you know, enumerate where are all the references to this thing and know that that is a complete list. Uh, that is a very, very important piece of being able to manage a large and messy code base. You can write Go in a way that doesn't really let you do it. There is no gun that cannot become a foot gun. Um, but, <laughs> but still, I, I think that is, that is a thing Go has, has going for it. Ian, Johnny? I think yes as well. I feel like I always come back to the simplicity of Go thing, but even poorly written Go and messy Go is like pretty easy to untangle compared to like where I came from in PHP, where the classes were auto-loaded in and you couldn't figure out where anything was even like the files even existed. So I think it is. I 
I think it's easier to untangle than a lot of others. Thank God we don't have method missing. <laughs> <laughs> you know how many times I've pulled my hair out doing Ruby and figuring that something was implemented somewhere deep up, up the chain and I couldn't figure out where to go to get something. Anyways, Go is, um, I think, one of the strong sort of cultural aspects of Go. Um, the idioms of Go contribute to helping keep the things we write in Go not simple, but perhaps simpler than they otherwise would be if they were written in a different language, you know, like Scala or Ruby or PHP or whatever. I've been fortunate enough to have been doing this for a while and I've, and I've come across similar software written in different tech stacks and, and including Go. And I'm thankful for Go because of that, right? Because I can understand these systems way better than I was able to understand these other systems written in other languages. Now I understand there's the nuance of time, you know, with more experience and more understanding overall that I'm sure that contributes to that. But like Ian's saying, it's like even poorly written Go is readable Go. It may not be elegant Go, but it's readable Go. I can more quickly understand what what the intent is. But yeah, I think the language itself, it's what it supports out of the box and also sort of the cultural, sort of idiomatic approach that we overall have as a community. Those of us who do go have been doing go for a while. Hopefully some these are things that we can impart in a new generation because these days we have way more new go developers than we have old. People are adopting go left and right and there's way more new people than there are old gophers like us. So I will add at the end. That's a funny thing. Gophers also live in the dirt. So, of course, goes great at brownfield <laughs> projects. In the grass. They love being in that dirty grass. Um, and with that, uh, we'll move on to our final segment of Unpopular Opinions. I actually think you should probably leave. All right, Sam, you're up first. Do you have an unpopular opinion? Oh boy, trying to formulate this one. We'll see. The most important part of GitOps is not Git and not Ops, at least depending on how you define those things. The most important part is the transform. You have objects on disk and you have them in Git and you, you know, make a change to them, you push them up and they go sailing out into the universe. Except the actually most important part of what's happening there is what's basically like a cloud compiler, which takes these input objects that you have and transforms them and transforms them and transforms them and passes them off to other systems, which transform them and transform them and result ultimately in the thing that you want. We could do this without Git. We could do it. We could do it with CVS. We could do it with a different system like that. What matters is the transform. Okay. Any thoughts on that, Ian, Johnny? <laughs> Just leave it there. No qualms there. Aren't the transforms the most important part of any software related thing? Like that's all software is, is take data, <laughs> transform data. Quiet! <laughs> Quiet! <laughs> Give it away the game! <laughs> no, that, that's that is a good point, right? Like truly, that is what we do, is we just, you know, take some bytes in and then we transform them in a bunch of ways until the things come out on the other side. So I think actually it is fair to say that Git is not the important GitOps. It's not fair to say that Ops is not the important part of GitOps. Because Ops really is the arrangement of the different transform operations, I think is, is the maybe way to think about that. And yes, the particular way that you arrange and configure those transforms is what's unique about GitOps. Just a sidetrack for three seconds. <laughs> I hear this term GitOps thrown around a lot these days. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> <laughs> it's DevOps, but with Git. So we've been arguing about this, <laughs> discussing this internally recently. This is why I offer it as an unpopular opinion. Write your objects in Git, use some kind of tool, like wh whatever your objects are, use some kind of tool, whether it's Terraform or some, you know, Kubernetes loader type thing, which then reads those objects and then like makes the world look like that. Gotcha. Essentially. And the main sort of obvious advantage that you get out of that is by putting them in Git, you have access to a pull request workflow that everyone is familiar with. You have reproducibility. You have a couple of really important properties that just come from having your infrastructure as code. And so then you just attach automation, aka transforms and ops -y things, to this sort of familiar flow and this easily navigable structure for where all your objects. So a fancy new name for what a lot of people were already doing. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> it's really just as is so often the case. And I'm sure that I will get plenty of 
disagreement or having missed some key aspect of this. But this is why it's not tied to a particular no, tool, right? It's, it's not the domain of, it's really just like, you've got Git, there's objects in it, you make a push, that is the event that triggers the processing of the objects. And whatever that means, which can be literally anything because you got Turing machines in between your Git repository and your stuff. So, yeah. Yes, infrastructure has code and the code lives in Git. Pretty much. All right. Ian, do you have an unpopular opinion? I'm horrible at this. I really don't. My last <laughs> one was like 90% popular. So, was that a, like the biggest humble brag ever? I mean, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm tapped into the people. No, it just means I'm behind the discourse, you know? Like, I thought this was not popular and now everyone agrees. So, you're at the end of the spicy train. I'm dated. You're giving away the game. You totally won that one. I'm trying to give it to you. Just take it, take it and run. <laughs> yeah. I got one. Okay, go for it. I think when you tweet, Twitter gives you that option to select uh, who can like reply or something um, to your tweet. If you select of the options, or if you go from everyone right to people you follow or only people you mention, let's go with the people you follow. I think that's the equivalent of saying, you know what? I only want responses from people who are most likely to agree with me. Mm. That's like shutting everybody else out. Like you, you, because if you don't follow those people and you specify that as the only option of people are going to reply, that's kind of creating your own echo chamber. Is it not? I agree with that. Yeah. I can't disagree. And it's, it's like sort of literally true. I think I'm just not sure that like it's like worse than any of the alternative options if you sort of play them out a bit. But that feels like a longer. Yeah conversation <laughs> i feel like it's a necessary thing though because people commenting on the internet are horrible and they are especially horrible to certain groups of people so i think it like i would say it depends on who's using it right if it's just someone that would be praised in bulk if it was just open and have a little bit of criticism then yeah i think i go with you but if it's someone that's just going to be dunked on because of a certain trait about them even if what they say is brilliant and they're not going to get positive or healthy responses back then i think it's less about creating echo chamber and more about protecting your own psychological safety and mental health mm. yeah the fact that we can't all agree on the one thing that should make it for a pretty interesting question to ask spicy our, our followers spicy yeah all right I think uh, that sounds like it's it, since Ian doesn't want to come up with an unpopular opinion. <laughs> hey, Ian. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. That just means you automatically have to come back next time, because... my I could offer you my backup one, but it's got Aristotle in it, and I don't feel like anybody can ask for that garbage, so let's just not. That's a terrible idea. Uh, yeah, that... <laughs> Sounds like a good place to end the episode then. <laughs> Ian and Sam, uh, thank you as always for, for joining us. And uh, thank you, Johnny, for being uh, an amazing co-host. My pleasure. Thank you out there, listeners, for uh, listening to another very meta and analogy-filled podcast. I, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. May your grass ever be greener. Get some grass. <laughs> Get some grass. Get it. <laughs> That's our show for this week. If you want more conversations like this one, check out our back catalog. There's a bunch of them. Episode 207 was a good one on open source maintenance. Here's a sample of Johnny from that episode. Rather than saying the projects need to change, we need to change ourselves. We need to change our approach to what how we're building things, right? So there's a reason I love Go, because Go is not trying to be all things to all people. It is a very specific language that was designed to solve a very specific set of problems that it saw, right? So when we talk about you know Go versus Java versus Rust, whatever it is, I look at these and I'm like, ah, I kind of don't really care what, whether you think this language is better than Go or not. Because for me, Go is solving a very specific set of problems. I'm not really going to compare feature by feature. I could care less. I honestly could care less about this other language's feature, right? Because that is not a problem that I have, right? So if we start looking to solve whether you know whether it's it's picking a, a language or the right package or the right uh, full-on open-source project that we're going to run, whatever it is, if we started saying, hey, 
let me not jump to the deep end. Let me not pick the most complicated thing, the most feature rich thing, the most, the thing with the prettiest website, the most stars, whatever. If we started looking at, okay, what problem am I trying to solve? Right? We'd get ourselves in, in, in fewer hot waters than we needed to. And I'm not looking at a lot of people that are jumping in the Kubernetes bandwagon right now. That is one example that I will always fall back into. Most of you don't need Kubernetes. Continue listening at gotime.fm slash 207. And hey, if you're a longtime listener of the show, do us a solid by recommending GoTime to a friend. That's a seriously simple way. You can help GoTime thrive and help your friend out while you're at it. Thanks again to Fastly for CDNing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for the beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate it. Next up, Matt Holt returns to talk about the Caddy web server, and he's bringing a friend with him. Natalie and John host, and it's a good one. So stay tuned. We'll have it ready for you next time on GoTime.